great. Thank you, Greg, and good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. As always, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, as you turn in there, I just want to take a moment and reiterate one thing that was already shared. Um, I just want to take a moment and just welcome everybody who's here today. Um, Really, whether you're joining us here at Maine or over at East or joining online, um, whether you would consider yourself a regular attender of our church or an infrequent attender or um, maybe, you know, this is your first time ever being here, whether you're a fully, like, wholehearted follower of Jesus, whether you're still kind of seeking out what you, you know, what you believe or if somebody just dragged you on here today and you are reluctantly here, I just want to say uh, that no matter who you are, we are so glad that you're here. I hope that this church feels like home to you because I ultimately hope that you feel loved here. I hope that you sense the love of God and the love of his church And we, as his church, thank the Lord that God has given his love to unlovely people like us. Um, We are so grateful for the goodness of God. So today, as we get into our message, I want to start by asking you a very direct question. All right? Ready? Here's the question. Is it okay for a Christian to eat a medium-rare steak? Is it okay for a Christian to eat a medium-rare steak? All right, that's the question for today. You know what I'm talking about. Done around the edges, pink in the center. You cut into it. There's a faint moo in the distance. You can hear it right now, right? All right. Is it okay for a Christian to eat a medium-rare steak? I'm, I'm asking because our sermon text is very applicable to that particular question today, all right? So we are in our 34th study through the book of Acts. So far, we have seen Jesus commission his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He has filled them with power from his Holy Spirit to do that. Um, they have preached in Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, And we left off uh, with them taking the gospel out to the Gentile regions outside of the Jewish world. And so uh, really where we left off last week was in chapter 15 with this important event called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, some very important decisions were made. There was this meeting of the minds, this council in Jerusalem. And if you recall, Paul and Barnabas were at the center of that meeting of the minds because they had just come back from their missionary journey around the region of Galatia or what we would call Turkey these days. Uh, While they were there, um, you know, while they were preaching, they returned back to the church in Antioch of Syria where they had come from. And when they had returned and they were celebrating all the work that God had done, these men from Jerusalem, Judea, came north up to the church in Antioch and started really um, opposing the teaching of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been teaching that the Gentiles could indeed be saved to be made right with God simply by expressing repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Um, These men came to the church in Antioch saying, no, Paul is wrong. Uh, You Gentile converts, yes, you can have your faith in Jesus, but you must add Judaism to it in order to be accepted by God. And so in particular, they were saying that, you know, you needed to add not just the general works of the law, but circumcision in particular. And they had this big church, you know, debate about it in Antioch, and they uh, decided to say, okay, let's take this down, let's take this matter down to the elders and the apostles who were in the church in Jerusalem and let them decide what the right thing to do is. Let's hear what they have to say. So 
The matter was taken down to Jerusalem. All parties shared their side. Some of the Pharisees and legalists within the church said, hey, here's why we should still ask people to adhere to the Mosaic law. And then Peter shared, well, you know, in my experience, as I preached the gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles, they believed and they didn't, you know, have to first uh, adhere to the law. And then Paul and Barnabas shared about their experience in their first missionary journey where many Gentiles had believed and had not yet committed to keeping the law. So after hearing all these testimonies, James, the half-brother of Jesus, proclaimed the council's decision And uh, the decision was this, we read this in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, where James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, right? So he's proclaiming that salvation is indeed available for the Gentiles by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by adding these additional religious works. Now, James proclaims that, but then he follows it with this, and this is Acts 15, Verse 20 and 21, the next two verses. It says, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has uh, had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, now what's going on with those four things listed here? Right, that's what we're going to talk about today. And here's how we're going to work through today's message. And really what I want to do is work our way from verse 22 through 35. Um, We're going to make several teaching points along the way as we go. Like always, we'll bring it home with a couple personal application takeaways. But both of those are going to tie right into the main point of this text. And the main point of our text today is this. It's that doing or not doing certain works can't make you a Christian, but it can help with Christian fellowship. Okay? Doing or not doing certain works can't make you a Christian, but it can help with Christian fellowship. Now, we're going to see this as we pick up in verse 22, right after James has made his two declarations, don't trouble the Gentiles, do abstain from these particular things. All right, so now look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So after hearing James's declaration, they decide to write this thing down in a a letter. And that letter needed to be taken from Jerusalem back north to the church in Syria and Antioch. And so the church in Jerusalem says, okay, well, we're going to send two of the trustworthy men from our church to go with Paul and Barnabas back up there. They're going to lend credibility to the letter. They're going to make sure it gets delivered faithfully. And so Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas, they deliver the letter together. And here's what the letter said. Keep reading in verse 23. Verse 23 says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. And I just want to start right there because I love how the letter starts with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem referring to the Gentile believers in Syria and Antioch as brothers. You're our brothers. They say, you're part of the family of God. Uh, we love you. We're, we're family. We're in this together as family. And it's indicative of the way Paul would write his future letters that ended up in our New Testament, where he would write in the book of Ephesians, where he would say the wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews is being torn down through Jesus, so that through him, God might make one man 
out of two. One group of people out of folks that had once been separated from each other. That's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul would say that Gentiles are heirs and partakers of the promise um, of the gospel, just like the Jews. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul would write and he would say, you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. They are all one in Christ. And so by calling them brothers, it's indicative that the Gentiles uh, don't have to add Judaism to their faith in Jesus before they can become part of God's family. God takes them just as Gentiles, right? And that's, as we mentioned last week, that's been God's plan all along. So this becomes even more clear in the remainder of the letter. So let's read the rest of this letter's content. Verse 24 Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore send Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Right, so... Again, they're emphasizing the unity of their decision, the credibility that comes with, you know, uh, Judas and Silas coming as witnesses from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and they say, look, they can verify the, the legitimacy of this letter, and I love how the letter, like, it kind of starts out with, like, this disclaimer, where they're like, hey, we know, we know that there's these dudes who came from Jerusalem, and, you know, they, they taught you that you had to add some Judas, some Judas, some uh, Judaism to your Jesus, um, but you know what? We didn't send them, right? These guys are mavericks. They're rogue. They're on their own. They don't represent us, right? So a little disclaimer out there. James says, however, we have come to a unified decision on this matter. And these guys that we've all sent together, they're going to bear witness of it. And they will confirm what we truly believe about this. And so that's what verse 24 through 27 are all about. Now, the letter starts to communicate in writing what James has already given us in words like we studied last week. So here it is in the letter, verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So a nice, short, but sweet, but direct letter right here, right? Here's what I love about this letter. I love that this letter first starts out with saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Because I want you to see that the Holy Spirit came first. They considered the Holy Spirit first and then to us. Guys, don't you agree? So many of our church conflicts and our our problems with brothers and sisters in Christ, man, they would be resolved more quickly and more faithfully if we first turned to the Holy Spirit. If we very quickly went to our knees and asked the Lord through his spirit to guide us into truth and reconciliation and love and the things that are uh, honoring to him, let's turn to the Lord first before ourselves. While the leaders in Jerusalem, they had received this wisdom from the Holy Spirit and in the Spirit's wisdom, now they're saying, hey, here are the things that the Gentiles, you new believing Gentiles, here are the things that you need to avoid. Things that have been sacrificed to idols, Think bloody things and strangled things and sexual immorality. All right, so what's going on with those? So I want to just talk about them. All right, we're going to talk about them today and not just skip over it. So if you know the Jewish law, you know 
the very first of the commandments. What are the first two of the Ten Commandments? Commandment number one, you will have what? No other gods before me. Commandment number two, don't make for yourselves any graven images. Right? Don't make any idols. So part of the basic foundational Jewish law was to avoid idols. Right? We, we don't want to mess with that. There's one true and living God. We don't want to have anything to do with idolatry. But here's what you have to remember. In this first century, where we're reading about in Acts chapter 15, man, we, there was pagan worship everywhere. Right? Gentiles were worshiping Greek gods everywhere. There were temples to false gods in every city. We saw that just a few chapters ago when Paul and Barnabas went to one of their cities and, and the people uh, believed that they were Zeus and Hermes and, and what? There was a temple to Zeus like right there on the edge of the city. And so in those temples for these pagan gods, people would offer animal sacrifices to those gods. Therefore, there would end up being all these animals sacrificed with their carcasses just kind of left over. Like, what are we going to do with these? So the carcasses would be taken to the market and the meat would be there and people could buy the, the meat in the markets. They could, you know, take it home and they could eat it. So as you can imagine, these Jews who didn't really want anything to do with idol worship, they didn't want to corrupt themselves or make themselves unclean by being associated with meat that had been given to these false gods in the temples. So they didn't eat meat if it had once been offered to idols. And this is why, this is the situation that the Apostle Paul writes later and he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can go home and read that on your own. But this whole idea of meat offered to idols, it also ties in to the issues of uh, avoiding strangled things and, and bloody things. So if you, again, if you know your Old Testament, then you know that the Jews were not to eat or consume the blood of anything. Um, you had this in the, the Mosaic Law, given in uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 12. But you also had it communicated even before that, back in Genesis chapter 9, um, in God's commands to Noah, right after they got off the ark. So part of the Jewish custom, even before the law of Moses, was to avoid eating blood. So, right, tough cookies if you're going to be a Jew, then you can't be a vampire. Uh, you can't be a cannibal, and you're not going to go to Europe and eat blood pie, okay? Like, this is just blood pudding, whatever it's called. So this, uh, this all ties into this whole idea of of strangled things. And that's because, you know, the Jews had a very particular way of draining the, the blood from the animals uh, before they would eat them. So they, they had a very specific way of doing that. And strangled things oftentimes didn't have the blood properly drained out, which I realize is kind of gross for us to be talking about this morning, but here it is in Scripture, so we're going to talk about it. So, the Jews were very particular about how the blood had been drained out of things before they would eat it. And so they didn't know if the blood had been properly drained out of these animals that had been offered to idols and pagan gods in the, the temples nearby. And so they, they wouldn't have eat those, that, that meat that if it had, um, without knowing how it had been strangled or, or um, what's the word? When you kill the animal and cut it up butcher it, slaughter it. There we go. Okay. All right. <laughs> and uh, there we go. So of course, um, on top of all this is sexual immorality, which sexual immorality, as you know, um, had been long forbidden by the Jewish law. Um, but here's what we have to remember. 
they are writing this letter to Gentile converts, right? These Gentile converts, maybe some of them were God-fearers who respected the Jewish law, but most of them weren't. They were just people who had grown up in a pagan lifestyle apart from the Jewish law. They had been raised in this lifestyle that had, you know, rituals that had to do with offering things to false gods. And one of the things that was common was for sexually perverse acts to be done in the pagan temples as an act of worship to some of the pagan gods and goddesses of fertility and things like that. So they had to be taught about sexuality and fornication and how offensive it was to the Jews, especially these actions that were associated with idol worship. So these are the things from which the new Gentile believers were taught to abstain. And what we also have to notice is what's not included in this letter. What's not included in there is things like circumcision. And it's not mentioned. Things that you would think would be in there like Sabbath keeping or Jewish festivals or other things that were very important to the practice of the Jews. They're not there. So what is the purpose of listing these things? And here's what we have to remember. When James made his proclamation and this letter was written, we need to remember he's, you know, they're really speaking to two groups of people. To the Jewish legalists, they're saying, hey, look, don't require anything but faith for the Gentile salvation. But to the Gentile converts, they're saying, do abstain from some things for the sake of Jewish conscience, especially when they are involving idol worship, right? Remember what James had, had declared earlier with the words of his mouth at the, at the Jerusalem council. Just look in your Bible up to chapter 15, verse 21. He says, avoid these things. And then in verse 21, he says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, they're making a very simple point. In all these cities, you Gentile believers, wherever you're going to go, there's going to be Jews now who have believed upon Jesus, the Messiah, but they also really respect Moses and the law, and they've been taught to value the law. So, you know, be sensitive to that. Be sensitive to that. Because what's the big idea of this text? Doing or not doing certain works can't make you a Christian, but it can help with Christian fellowship. Right? That's the point. So on to verse 30. Verse 30 says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Right? So you can get the picture here. Paul and Barnabas, Silas and Judas, they leave the, the council in Jerusalem, they go north to Antioch, they take the letter, they deliver the decision, and you can imagine that the church in Antioch was kind of like, you know, anxious, like waiting, like, man, we sent these two guys down to Jerusalem to get an answer, what the answer what's the answer going to be? And so now they, they get the answer, and it says that they rejoiced. They rejoiced over four restrictions, right? What's going on with that? Okay, well... I want you to think about it. Why were they so happy? Think about it like this. You've probably heard this story before, so bear with me if you've already heard it. If not, you'll get the point. There was a college girl who wrote a letter to her mom and dad and said something like this. Mom and dad, I'm writing to just fill you you in on a few plans for my life. I have fallen in love with a man, and we intend to be married in one month. He quit high school when he was in 11th grade, and he's currently unemployed. Don't worry, though. His mom is letting him live in her basement and eat the food from her house, so he's okay. 
Like him, I'm going to be dropping out of school now too. But we both plan to finish down the road. He's great, and you'll love him when you meet him after our wedding. P.S. Everything I've just written in this letter so far is false, but it is true that I got a D in one of my classes, and I'm going to need help paying for my tuition soon. Okay? All right. So, what's the point? The point is, you're happy to hear the news of only a few hard things when there was potential to hear a load of many hard things, right? That is, is, the, is the, the point. And how does this apply to the situation with the Gentile believers in Antioch? Here's, here's why. Traditionally, the Jews had over 600 laws that they had to follow. Yes, one of them was circumcision. And now these Gentile, now these, uh, G- um, Gentile believers had just heard from the men in Jerusalem that, hey, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you have to add the works of the law and you have to add circumcision on to your belief in Christ if you really want to be accepted by God. So these Gentile believers in Antioch, right, they're like, uh, man, maybe, you know, converting man, is not going to be so easy. And now James is saying, look, you know, there's, there's not 600. There's just a few things that we recommend that you do. And they're not even we're not going to trouble you to like think that you need to do these things to be saved. We're just saying that you will do well if you avoid these certain things. So they would have been happy to hear the news of a few things when they were nervous about hearing the load of many things that they thought they might have to obey. So I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light, right? It's a, it's a blessing. The new Gentile converts in Antioch rejoiced greatly that they didn't need the heavy yoke of the law to be saved. They could live under the light yoke of Jesus. Now, here's what happened after the judgment was delivered. It says in verse 32 that Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, which, by the way, let's just disclaimer, right? Well, not disclaimer, but just a side note. Uh, This is the second time in the book of Acts where we've heard that there were prophets in the New Testament church, which I know kind of goes maybe challenging to some of our views. We read later in the New Testament that there is this spiritual gift of prophecy. So I'll just say this. Uh, I don't have time to cover all that today, but if that's something that's kind of ever been on your mind about how should we think about New Testament prophets and that type of thing and the gift of prophecy, I would love to talk to you about it later. So just know that. All right, so Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So what a wonderful picture to me of the body of Christ that's right here. Judas and Silas, they were not from the church in Antioch. They were from the church in Jerusalem. They, they stay with this family of new brothers and sisters in Christ, and they strengthen them and encourage them and teach them. And sometimes it's a blessing to have Leaders from other local churches come and strengthen our local church, isn't it? I, um, I've been here for four and a half years now, and I, I think about the people who are leaders in other churches who have come and encouraged us and strengthened us and blessed us. I think about people like Dr. James Reisner, who we prayed for a few minutes ago. He's come here and encouraged us in God's word. I think about people like Dr. Jeremy Kimball from Cedarville University. I think about... You know, uh, people like John Pope, who's now pastoring out west. I think about 
Jim Drysbaugh and all the help that he was to this church over the years and still is to us in many ways. I think about the people from like Builders for Christ who have come from other churches around the country and, and encouraged us just like Rick Utenis did like two weeks ago by sharing his testimony and in the experience that he's done. You know, in the future, we're going to have more people who come from other churches to strengthen our church because sometimes there's a special encouragement that happens when leaders from other local congregations come to our congregation and strengthen us. And that's what was happening with Judas and Silas when they came from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch and encouraged them. That's verse 33. Now, this is interesting. In the ESV Bible, there is no verse 34. All right? In, at least in the, in the version that I have. Some of you have King James Bibles or other Bibles where there is a verse 34. And if you have a Bible that has verse 34, it probably says something like this. Now, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Now, this has led the KJV only people, which by the way, I'll just say this, like I'm not personally opposed to the King James Version, but there are some people who are hardcore King Jamesers, right? And they say, look, the reason why we should be King James only is because modern translators have you know, corrupted the scriptures by removing parts of it. And this is an example. Where'd verse 34 go? Well, are, they, are the King James only folks right? What's going on? Did someone intentionally remove scripture? Did the printer just make a printing error? Whoops, skip verse 34, right? What? The answer is this. Here's the answer. The earliest original, uh, the earliest copies of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, they don't have the words of verse 34. So the earliest codex manuscripts uh, from like the 400s AD, they don't have it. The Latin Vulgate doesn't contain it. The earliest Coptic copies of scripture and the Syriac copies, like they don't have the words of verse 34. So it appears that those words about Silas have been added, added in somewhere along the way. So that is why the ESV translation, which I preach out of week in and week out, you know, takes the, uh, it translates from the earliest manuscripts that we have, and so it leaves verse 34 out. Now, that was a little side tangent. Maybe for some of you, you're like, who cares? Others of you are like, okay, that's helpful. Some of you are like, whoa, I got a lot of questions. All right? If you're one of those people that has a lot of questions, our good elder, Scott Dixon, has said, you can call him anytime. He would love to talk with you about those. All right? So bring your questions to him. But, uh, Thank you, Scott, for your kind heart. All right. So let's look at our last verse for today, verse 35. Verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. So again, just a little side note again. Both teaching and preaching are valuable ministries in the church, but they're different, right? Preaching mainly has to do with proclaiming the gospel, the message of life in Christ and the need to repent of sin, the call for faith in Jesus and to, and to really call people to respond to Jesus. That's mainly what preaching is about. Teaching uh, has to do with helping those who already believe uh, understand better and properly apply scripture to their life. So both preaching and teaching have their place in the ministry of the church Um, And that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing. It says that they were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So this is, we've been looking at a big conflict here in Acts chapter 15, but 
the conflict kind of resolves here. It gets settled. And there's a nice, clear, enjoyable resolution to this situation. But in the next verses, there's going to be another conflict that arises among people in the church. And this one doesn't end so clearly. And, of course, you're going to have to come back next week to hear about that one. We'll get into it next week. But for today... I want to end with two takeaways for us that revolve around the main idea of this text. And again, the main idea of this text is this. It's that doing or not doing certain works can't make you a Christian, but it can help with Christian fellowship. So takeaway number one. With that big point in mind, here's takeaway number one. Church family, rejoice that your doing or not doing of certain works isn't what saves you. We need to rejoice in that. That was the error of the Jewish legalists. They were putting these unnecessary religious requirements on people and doing so created this massive conflict in the church and it was contrary to the gospel. And the same thing happens when church leaders today put these extra religious works on people saying, if you do these, then you can truly be saved. And it's very obvious in some teachings of the church today Well, they'll say, okay, you need to not only believe in Jesus, but you need to do the work of baptism or you need to do the, the work of, uh, of speaking in tongues, or you need to do the work of Sabbath keeping, or whatever it is, and they add these religious works on, and it's obviously contrary to the gospel of grace. Now, that's obvious stuff, but it also happens more subtly when we can sometimes suggest to people that, hey, if you do these extra biblical things, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of like a good Christian, okay? And we take our personal preferences Whatever they may be about, music style, pews or chairs, how much people should spend on their standard of living, you know, whatever it may be, political policy, all sorts of stuff that can, yes, very sensitive, even important, but the list could go on and on. And I want to say this, it is absolutely fine to have a personal preference, but we have to be careful about making personal preferences into criteria for people to somehow qualify to be good Christians. Because as I've said before, I want to say it again, there are no good Christians. There's just a good Christ. And our hope is in him. Our hope is in him. Guys, can you imagine? Can you imagine if your standing with God like really was dependent upon your works? You'd constantly live in fear. Well, did I do enough things that were good and right? Did I do too many, you know, things that were bad and wrong? Uh, the questions would always be lurking in your mind. Have I been good enough? Oh man, how good is actually good enough? Like 51% good or 50.1? Like, well, ah, we'd be freaking out. Praise God that Jesus is good enough, right? He's good enough. Our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood. And his righteousness. So this means because of Jesus, our relationship with God is constant and eternal. And it doesn't waver back and forth. It wasn't started by our good works. It's not going to be finished by our good works. It all started and got finished with Jesus' good work on our behalf. So yes, our sin absolutely displeases God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Yes, there will be conviction in our heart sometimes. But no, even our sin does not break God's covenant to save us and take us all the way home. So... If our relationship was with God was determined by our works, then all we'd have is this on-again, off-again relationship with God over and over. Praise God. Like, 
Our relationship with him is built on his faithfulness, not ours. The scripture clearly says when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. So that should give us great confidence, not in ourselves, but in our faithful God. So rejoice that your doing or not doing of certain works doesn't determine your salvation. Jesus does. Here's the second takeaway for us, church family. Remember that your doing or not doing of certain works can foster fellowship. And sometimes our doing or not doing of good works can do the opposite. It can you know, kind of degrade fellowship within the church. So the instruction for the Jewish legalists, right, it was, to, it was to not teach that works needed to be added in order for the Gentiles to be saved. But the instruction for these new Gentile converts was to be sensitive to the consciences of the Jews. And in doing so, that's how they would show that these brothers were indeed family who they loved and they cared about. So church family, let's do that. Right? Let's love one another. Let's be sensitive to one another. In 1 Corinthians, actually, is probably the most thorough teaching about this in the whole Bible. Um, Paul addresses this topic of Christian unity and, and Christian liberties and consciences and stumbling blocks and how we should act about all that. In chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, he specifically talks about the issue of meat offered to idols and whether or not Christians should eat it, how we should think about it, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. I don't have time to cover it all, but I suggest you read it all on your own. But I do want to highlight a few of the kind of standout verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23 and 24 says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Guys, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is all about us Laying down our Christian liberties. Why? To, to pursue what's beneficial and helpful for others. A mature, a, a mature Christian will gladly lay down the things that they are free to do or not to do in order to not create stumbling blocks for other Christians who could get hung up on those actions. That's a mark of Christian maturity. It's especially a mark of Christian maturity when you're thinking about how your actions you know, if you can give up your Christian liberties in order to not prevent a non-believer from hearing the gospel. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 through 33 says. So again, Paul's talking about eating meat offered to idols and stuff like that. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Do all to the glory of God. It glorifies God when we lay down our Christian liberties, things that we don't have to do or not have to do. It glorifies him when we lay him down for the sake of the weaker brother. A few years ago, my dad and I had, oh, my dad's probably gonna watch this video. My dad and I had this situation where my dad, you know, he felt very strongly that a Christian should never drink alcohol. And I said, well, dad, Jesus turned water into wine. And Paul told Timothy, you can take a little wine for your stomach if you're feeling sick. And me and my dad had this big debate about it, right? And so, you know, eventually it finally boiled down. And here's what I said to my dad. I said, dad, all right, I won't drink alcohol 
if you admit that you're the weaker brother. <laughs> and that's how we landed it. And <laughs> didn't go so hot, right? Not recommending that. And dad, I'm sorry for my arrogance if you're watching. But, but here's the thing, you know, mature Christians, aren't, they're not basing their decisions in pride and winning arguments. They want to win people. They want to see people come to know Jesus. They want to see weaker brothers not stumble. They want to see lost people become saved. So we give up our Christian liberties for that. And that is a mark of Christian maturity. So back to the opening question of the day. Can a Christian eat a medium rare steak? Is there anything wrong with it? Here's the answer. Maybe. Seriously, maybe. Um, because Christian fellowship with the family of God is far more important than what you eat, right? It is far more important than what you eat. And the teaching here in Acts chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans, I think it's chapter 14 and other places, it clearly teaches that a mature Christian will give up their Christian liberties for the sake of a weaker brother or for the sake of a non-believer uh, being able to hear the gospel. So, let's give things up if it helps reach people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians nine nineteen, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win them. Okay? So, I'll just wrap up by saying this. I know we're not all going to agree on every issue, Right? Not every single one of our members agrees on every single issue that's out there. Not every one of our elders or our deacons or our staff all agree on every single fine point of things. We agree on most things, but not on everything. And church family, that's fine. It's okay. Because we all agree on the most important thing, and that is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We all agree on that. And in the areas where we disagree... Here is a good word of wisdom that can help guide us towards godliness. The early church fathers used to say this, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So doing or not doing certain works can't make you a Christian, but it can help with Christian fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, we stop once again to thank you for your word. And thank you that it gives us instruction in godliness and helps us understand your heart. And Lord, I thank you that part of your heart is that we come to trust your son. And I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room today who may be thinking that their salvation is dependent upon their works, their good deeds, or maybe their salvation is prevented by their bad deeds, I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the fact that they can be saved all of, because of Jesus' deeds and that you would bring people to trust in him completely for their salvation. I pray, Lord, for any of us in this room who may be prone to legalism and pride and things that you clearly address in this text, Lord, and I ask that you would mature us as a congregation where we are willing to give up liberties 
for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially for the sake of reaching the lost. We need your help, Lord, to rightly understand and courageously apply this text to our lives. And so we ask that you would help us do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.